Welcome here tonight. Thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Trent. Some of you know me, many of you don't. I haven't been around quite as much recently, but it's my privilege to be able to teach here once in a while. I've been a part of the group for a long time, and uh, privileged to be here tonight and be able to continue us along on our series. I like to start off with a random fact about myself to help you get to know me more than you actually wanted to. So tonight's fact, random fact, is that I have this bizarre tendency and have for a long time to keep things in their packaging. So case in point, when I was in grade nine, I got a stereo. The stereo had a remote control. When I got rid of the stereo 10 years later, the remote control was still in its plastic bag. And it was the cleanest remote control that a 10-year-old stereo had ever seen in its life. If you come to our house right now, you will see tags on the furniture. The furniture is not new. The tags are on the furniture. Uh, one of our first challenging conversations in marriage was when I came home one day and some of the furniture tags had been removed. <laughs> there was a crucial conversation. It's okay, we're still married. I don't know why I do it. It's a weird habit. I don't have a good reason. Perhaps at one point I thought it would improve the resale value of these things that I never plan on resaling. Not sure. But that's my bizarre quirk about myself. This is my family. My wife, Megan, some of you know her, and our son, Eisen, is eight months old. I'm showing this picture partly because I can and partly because I'm sure we got the cutest one. And I know all parents think that, but he's a lot of fun. He's great. Uh, it's been a fun eight months. So we're talking tonight, we're continuing on a series that Chet kicked us off on last week. And we're talking about relating with God. How many people were here for the last series through September to December? Some of it, all of it. So we were talking about relationships, people relating with people in your family groups, in your friend groups, in your workplaces, in your schools. And one of the things we value as a group, many of you know, is people relating with people. But another thing we value is people relating with God. And that's the series we're moving on to now. Partly because it's a value, but partly because this is arguably one of the biggest desires in God's heart, relating with people, getting into relationship with people. And as you read the Bible, you see so much that God has done throughout history to get into deeper relationship with people. And if you've been here for a while, you know that we don't take anything for granted. We don't assume that everyone here is in the same place. We don't assume that because you happen to walk into a church tonight, you're a Christian, or you'd call yourself a follower of Jesus. And wherever you're at tonight, if you're just feeling this out, I want you to know that it's totally safe. You didn't walk into the wrong room. This is a great group of people and a safe place to ask your questions. Feel free to do that without any pressure. So glad you came tonight. But that said, this whole God-pursuing people thing, regardless throughout history of what the people have believed, God was pursuing them, which means that God, I believe, is pursuing every one of you and relationship with every one of you individually by name, regardless of where you're at or what you believe. And that's one of the things we believe because it's what the Bible teaches. So thank you for being here tonight. Uh, we, we relate to different people differently don't we? Should be no surprises there. It is, uh, it would be inappropriate for my friend to relate with me the same way that my mom does. Or it would be inappropriate for my friend to relate with me the same way that my wife does. Or that my son does. That just wouldn't be okay, right? It would not be okay for me to relate with an on-duty police officer the same way that I would casually relate with my best friend. 
okay? When we just had our child, my younger brother, who has three kids, gave me a phone call and he said, Trent, don't try breastfeeding. And then he said, it hurts. <laughs> it would not be appropriate for the father of a child to try and relate with the child the same way that the mother of a child does. There's just some differences there. I'll tell you when you're older. Okay, so people relate to people differently, and the point is that there are appropriate ways for us to relate to people, and there are inappropriate ways for us to re relate with people. And the Bible reinforces this as an example. 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 3 says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity and give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Just laying out that there are different ways, different appropriate ways to treat different human relationships. There are other things in the Bible about how husbands and wives are to relate to each other, how slaves are to relate to their masters, how fathers are to relate to their children, how people are to relate to authorities, and the Bible also talks about how people are supposed to relate with God. There's an appropriate way to do that, and there's not an appropriate way to do it. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words be few. Or 1 Peter 2.17 says, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And I like this verse a lot because it again emphasizes that there are appropriate ways to relate with others, both people and God. And particularly this verse shows us that the appropriate way for people to relate with God is to fear God. And tonight we're gonna talk about what it looks like to fear God, okay? So the, the plan for tonight, the roadmap, I'm gonna tell you what it is not to fear God, what it is to fear God, and we want to end tonight by talking about some way of measuring whether we're relating well with God or not. Okay, and I'll give you some tools to do that. So that's the plan for tonight. That's where we're going. So what does it mean to fear God? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to be scared of God, to be terrified of God. And we know that because as you read the Bible, there's lots of different cases where God appears in some way to people or where angels on God's behalf, appear in some way to people. And what's one of the first phrases that comes out of their mouth most of the time? Somebody. Fear not. Do not be afraid. So God actually tells people, point blank, don't be afraid. Isaiah 41.10 and other verses like it, God tells his people through his prophets not to be afraid, because God is actually with them. So we're, we're supposed to drive out fear because God is with us, not be afraid of him. So God doesn't want people to be scared of him, but we're supposed to fear God. So what's that mean? So in order to better understand what it might mean to fear God, I want to take a quick whirlwind tour through a couple of parts of your Bible. You can turn with me there if you want or on your Bible app. But in the Old Testament, the front half of your Bible God chose a people group for himself. So this was the people group of Israel, two million people in slavery in Egypt. And God called them out of Egypt, took them out of their slavery, and he said, you guys will be my people and I'll be your God. And God told those people, God told Israel 
what he wanted their relationship to look like and how he wanted them to relate with him. And again, in the Old Testament, in the front half of your Bible, there was a way that that was supposed to happen. And there were ways for it not to happen. I'll give you an example. In the book of Leviticus, so like the third book of the Bible or something, Leviticus 16 talks about this thing called the Day of Atonement. So God had directed his people to build a big tent, and this was going to be the place of worship. And in this tent, there was this curtained-off area called the Most Holy Place. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant, this golden artifact with cherubim, where God would come down and actually interact with the high priest once a year. So on this Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, that was the one day of the year where the high priest only could go into this most holy place. First, he would offer a sacrifice to cover his own sin. Then he would offer a sacrifice to cover the place. Then he would offer a sacrifice to cover the sins of all people. And if he did any element of that incorrectly, he would die, literally die. If anyone else went in in his place, they would die. There was a way that God had set up for people to relate with him in the front half of your Bible. Another example, Exodus 19, when God says, Moses, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments for the people. Come up on this mountain, I'll come down in a cloud of smoke, and I'll speak, and I'll tell you the Ten Commandments, and everyone will hear it. But tell everyone that if any other person or animal even approaches the mountain, they'll die. Again, lots of death here, right? And the people took this very seriously because they'd actually seen it happen. They had seen people among themselves who had disobeyed what God had laid out as the right way for people to relate with God, and they had watched those people literally die. So there was an appropriate way for people to relate with God in the front half of your Bible, and they took that very seriously because they saw what would happen if they didn't. Now fast forward to the New Testament, the back half of your Bible. God sent his only son, Jesus, born at Christmas, died at Good Friday, rose from the dead at Easter, as the sacrifice to cover the sins of all people for all time. And the book of Hebrews, right near the back of your Bible, is a really interesting book because it talks about and compares the old way that people had to relate with God to the new way that people could relate with God now that Jesus had died on the cross. In fact, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that on that day, the curtain, referring to that curtain that separated off the most holy place in this building of worship, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that all people now had this easier access to God directly because Jesus had died on their behalf. So what, what's the point of all of this? The point is that it's easier to relate with God now than it was in the front half of your Bible. In fact, most of us probably don't even think about it, right? So how many people prayed today? Lots of us prayed, okay? And obviously all of us have shown up in a church today. How many of us thought before we prayed or showed up in a church, if I don't do this quite right, I might die? That's a silly question. No one thought that, right? And we don't have to think that because Jesus died on behalf of all people. But the point, and this is so, so important, is that according to the Bible... God never changes. James 1.17 talks about that. So if God never changes, it means that as powerful as he was in the front half of your Bible, he is that powerful now. 
as holy as he was, as separate from sin as God was in the front half of your Bible, he's that holy right now. As wretched, as despicable as sin was in the front half of your Bible, sin in the world, sin in my life, sin in your life, is that wretched now. So much so that the result of me, a sinful guy, appearing in the presence of holy, almighty, glorious God, should be literal death. It's not because of what Jesus did, but God never changes. So let's try and wrap our heads around this. God is still as holy, as powerful, and sin is still as wretched as it was in the Old Testament. So it would absolutely not be crazy to envision someone being terrified of this God, but he tells us not to be afraid of him. So I'm not supposed to be afraid of God, but I absolutely could be. So what is fear of the Lord? And according to Dave Buring, author of this discipleship journey, okay, the fear of the Lord is two things, and we're going to talk about them tonight. First, the fear of the Lord is taking God seriously. Taking God seriously. I read this verse recently. I really like it a lot. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. What does it mean to take God seriously? I think it means we recognize who he is. Almighty, holy, completely separate from sin, glorious, full of splendor, loving, compassionate, Recognizing who God is, recognizing who we are, so broken, full of sin, wretched, and trying to relate with God properly, understanding who he is and who we are. I think that's what it means to take God seriously. I think it means not being cavalier about how we approach God, whether it's in prayer or in a church or hearing from him through another person across a table from us. Think for a second about what it might mean for you to take God seriously. Do you take God seriously? Every night we try and have an application time, and usually that's at the end. Tonight it's going to look a little different because we're going to do a few mini application times throughout the night. And in a second, don't do it yet, but there's a worksheet on your table, and in a second I'm going to get you to grab it. And the application time tonight is going to be silent. Okay? There's actually not a discussion time formally tonight. But instead, when we pull out the application worksheet, I want you just to reflect in silence for two minutes. And this first time through, we're just going to do this table number one at the top of the front page. So it says, fear of the Lord is taking God seriously. And for two minutes, I want you just to think about those three blanks. When you think about taking God seriously, don't start yet. 
When you think about taking God seriously, what's one area of your life where you're doing this well? What's one area of your life where you could stand to get just a little bit better? And what's one thing you could change or try in the next seven days to get just a little bit better in this regard? Okay, so take two minutes, think about taking God seriously and fill in your chart silently, and then we'll carry on. So the fear of the Lord, first of all, is taking God seriously. The second aspect of the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Psalm, or Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is, by definition, hatred of evil. Silly question. Raise your hand. How, how many people here hate evil to some degree? That's a pretty good, pretty good ratio, right? Less silly question. Why do you hate evil? Do you hate evil because Christians are supposed to? Do you hate evil because someone in a church told you to once? Do you hate evil because the Bible says we should? Or do you have a different reason? This book is called The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. It's short, it's a very easy read, and extremely worthwhile if anybody's interested. It was written in 1978, and it could have been written yesterday and apply to us. And I'm going to give you an example because there's a quote in the beginning of this book that I really appreciate where Jerry Bridges says, our first problem is that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. We are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. Why do you hate evil? Do you hate evil because you're supposed to, or do you hate evil because it crushes God's heart? I want you to think for a second about your life and hatred of evil, and I want you to pull out your worksheet again, and on the bottom of the front page, what's one area of your life where you're doing this hatred of evil thing pretty well? What's one area of your life where you could stand to improve? And what's one thing you could change or try in the next seven days to get just a little bit better in terms of how you hate evil. Take two minutes and fill that out silently. So the fear of the Lord is taking God seriously and the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And the fear of the Lord is the appropriate way for people to relate with God. That's why we're talking about it tonight. So I told you I wanted to close tonight with something I've been thinking about recently, and that is how do we measure whether we're relating well with God or not? So my, my day job is engineering. Leave it to the engineer to want to come up with a metric or a measurement to use in a church but that's what I'm trying to do because I'm trying to understand how can I tell if I'm relating with God well or if I'm not relating with God well. And unfortunately, I don't think it's as simple as saying, am I doing my devotions? Yep, am I going to church? Yep, I guess I'm good. 
And I also don't think it's as simple as saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of hearing from God and hearing what he's saying. Because how many people have ever experienced a season where you were praying and you were approaching God and you didn't necessarily feel like you heard him? How many people have experienced that? Yeah. Keep your hands up for a sec, just by the way. Have a look around. If you're in that place, or if somewhere down the road you find yourself in that place, you're not alone. And you won't stay there. So don't be afraid. But how can we evaluate whether we're relating well with God or not? And so as a basis for answering this question, I was thinking about a human relationship. I was thinking about a husband and wife. How can I tell in my marriage if I'm relating with my wife well or not? And as part of this question, I picked up a book called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Now, this, this is a human book. This is about people relationships. I don't even know if the author is a Christian. Okay, there's, if you read this book, there's very little in here about relationship with God. It's all about husband-wife stuff. But in this book, he talks about seven principles that if practiced in a marriage will make your marriage more likely to last. It will help you maintain or regain a healthy, healthy marriage and it will improve the friendship and trust that you have with your spouse. And so even though that's a book about human relationships, remember that our relationship with God is meant to be a relationship of friendship and trust. And so I think there are actually some parallels that we can take from these seven principles by John Gottman and apply to our relationship with God. Seven principles that we can actually pull a few metrics out of, a few measuring sticks, tools that we can use to help us evaluate are we relating with God well or not. And so on the next slides, you're going to see a few columns. I'm going to show you the principle by Gottman from this book, what it means in a marriage, what it might mean in our relationship with God, and what's the metric? What's the tool we can use to evaluate are we relating with God well or not? So as an example, the first one, the first principle in this book is to enhance your love maps. In a marriage, what that means is work to get to know your spouse, who they are, what makes them tick, what they love, what brings them life, what doesn't bring them life. And that's as, the far, that's as far as the book goes, okay? But I'm asking the question, what might that same principle look like in our relationship with God? And I think it might mean, how well do we know God? His character, who he is, his ways, what he does, what he loves in our lives, what he loves in the world. What breaks his heart? What does he think in any day-to-day -day situation? And I think the metric, the first measuring stick we can use to evaluate how well we're relating with God is very simply the question, how well do you know God? When somebody makes a statement about God, how easy is it for you to say, no, that's not him. That has never been him, and here's how I know it. How easy is it for you to say, yeah, that is God. That word you received, absolutely that's God. Here's how I know. Last week we watched a video, Chet showed it, by Dave Buring. And Dave said that this, knowing God, is the most important part of being part of God's family. How well do you know God? 
That's the first measuring stick tonight. And if you look at your life and you think, yeah, I know God and his character, who he is really well, then maybe you're relating with God really well. Or maybe this is an area where you can afford to grow. And by the way, if you listen to all seven of these principles tonight and you walk away thinking, I could grow in all of them, that's okay. Pick one. Start there. Okay, this is all about getting a little bit closer. Right? No judgment, no condemnation in Christ. So, second principle from Gottman. Nurture your fondness and admiration. In a marriage, this means reminding yourself of your spouse's positive qualities. Consider the small things as well as the big things and make it a habit. Habit is a key word there. In fact, Gottman says, if fondness and admiration are missing, reviving the marriage relationship is impossible. So what might this look like in a relationship with God? I think it might mean practicing worship and thankfulness. Thanking God for the specific elements of his character, who he is, and his ways, what he's done. Thinking about the big things as well as the many little kindnesses. Maybe making this part of your day-to-day devotion time. And so the metric here, I think, is two parts. Number one, how easy is it for you to thank God? If somebody challenged you to say, come up with a hundred things to thank God for, how easy would that be for you to do? How easy would it be for you to come up with a hundred reasons to praise him? And the second part is, do you have a habit of worship and thankfulness? Or is that a Sunday morning thing, a Thursday night thing? If you have a habit of worship and thankfulness, this is like breathing for you, then maybe you have a strong relationship with God. If you don't, maybe this is an area where you can afford to grow. That's okay. Third principle, turn toward each other instead of away. In marriage, Gottman says, this means to practice brief interactions to connect with your spouse. Let your spouse know that he or she is valued during the grind of everyday life. And that's the key phrase for this principle, the grind of everyday life. Because if you think about your relationship with God, how many people feel as though most of your relationship with God does not feel exceptionally spiritual? Okay, it's not, does everyone feel spiritual 100% of every day? I don't. There is this grind of everyday life. We get up, we brush our teeth, we go to school, we go to work, we come home again. It kind of goes like that over and over and over. And so this principle in our relationship with God might mean looking for ways to turn toward God during the grind of everyday life. Small ways, little micro ways to show him appreciation every day. Doing something small that you know God loves. Another book, Practice of the Presence of God. This is written by Brother Lawrence. He was a monk in a monastery. He worked in a kitchen. Another excellent book. He said something in here that really challenges me and relates to this point. So while working in the kitchen, Brother Lawrence says, I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for the love of him. Referring to God. He tried to make this practice of doing little, regular, everyday things for the love of God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for the love of God. How many people make pancakes? 
How many people have ever flipped a pancake and thought, God, that one's because I love you. I turn the cake that's frying on the pan for the love of him. That's crazy. Okay, maybe this metric means referencing God in everything. So this is another Dave Beering phrase. But if God is really God, the idea is that I should be thinking about him in everything I do, in everything I say, in every choice I make, in every conversation, throughout every day. If he's really God, I should be referencing him with all I am and with all I do. This one's hard for me. This is probably one of the ones at the top of my areas to grow list. Okay, purchases are a big one. So I'm pretty good at referencing God when I'm making a big purchase, a house or a car. Oh God, what do you want me to do? Spend thousands of money, thousands of dollars of money, or not. It's a lot easier to reference God when you're about to go broke, okay? How good am I at referencing God in the small the thousand purchases I make a year. I'm gonna go buy some milk. Not that good, okay? I don't reference God in everything. That's an area for me to grow. So I think the metric here is, do you look for little ways during the day-to-day grind to appreciate, to recognize God, to acknowledge God? If you do, great. Maybe you're relating with him really well. If you don't, maybe this is a way you can grow. Fourth principle, there's seven. Fourth principle, let your partner influence you. In marriage, this means taking your spouse's opinion and feelings into account and allowing that to influence what you do. Don't insist on getting your way. Be open to learning. In our relationship with God, I think this might mean humility. Simply, are you willing to allow God to change you? And by the way, there's an easy way to do that and a hard way to do that. The easy way to do that is to say, God, please come in and change me. Change my mind, change my heart, make me different and cause me to live differently. And that's the easy way because all I really have to do is pray for it and then God just does it. The harder way is where you say, God, change me. And he says, okay. So that comment you just made to that person you know that wasn't entirely true. And I actually want you to go correct your statement. I once had a phone call with a family member, a close family member. The phone call was escalating. I got very angry and I hung up on them. And I felt like God said, phone them back and apologize for hanging up. So I phoned him back. I apologized for hanging up. And as we were talking, the conversation escalated. I hung up on them again. God says, phone them back. This is 30 seconds later. Felt like an idiot. I phoned them back. I apologized for hanging up. Conversation escalated again. I hung up on them again. God says, phone them back. phone him back. I apologize for hanging up on him. It didn't escalate. That's the hard way to let God change you. The way where he asks you to respond. 
the way where he asks you to change something. Is your inclination when he does that to allow him to? Or is your inclination to push back? Say, no, no. I'm doing okay on these other six principles. I don't need to allow you to change that aspect of my life. And that's the metric. Are you willing to let God influence you? Both the easy way, the inside change me way, and the way where he influences and asks you to change your behavior. Are you willing to let him influence you? And if you are, you're probably relating well with God. And by the way, what this metric is really asking is Jesus Christ really Lord of your life? It's a tough one. Fifth principle, according to Gottman, solve your solvable problems. In a marriage, this means soften how you have tough conversations, find common ground, work through emotional injuries, and acknowledge your part in them. In a relationship with God, this might just mean confessing the sin that we know about, turning away from it, asking someone to hold us accountable so we don't do it again, and having honest conversations with God. And I think the metric here is, are you taking intentional steps to improve and heal your relationship with God in the areas where you can, in the areas that you know about? God reveals a sin in your life. Are you taking steps to change it? Are you confessing it? Are you turning from it? Are you asking your friend to pray for you? I'm going away next weekend. Ask me how I did with that. Hold me accountable. Okay, we just had New Year's. Maybe God challenged you and said, in 2020, I want you to work on this area of your life. It's middle of January. Have you taken any steps to intentionally follow God to improve and heal your relationship with God in the areas that you know about. You won't know about all areas. That's okay. You know about some. Solve your solvable problems. That's the fifth metric. There's two more. Sixth principle is to overcome gridlock. In a marriage, this means when you hit an irreconcilable issue, prevent it from overwhelming your relationship. Realize that you don't need to solve it in order to stay in the relationship. I'll repeat that. Realize that you don't need to solve it in order to stay in the relationship. The goal is to acknowledge and discuss it without hurting each other. What might this mean in terms of our relationship with God? Gridlock. How many people have ever had a situation you hoped it would go one way. You prayed that it would go that way. And it didn't. Anyway. God, I asked you to help me pass that exam. I failed it. God, I asked you to take away the cancer. You didn't. God, I asked you to save my parents' marriage. Did it. Or maybe it looks different. 
Maybe it's a verse. You read a passage in the Bible that appears to contradict everything you thought you knew about God, and you're confused. And you say, this doesn't make sense, or I just don't agree with it, frankly. I read this passage, and Lord, I don't agree that that's you. Gridlock. And the point of this metric is to not allow those things to overwhelm your relationship with God. Create dialogue with God on those things. One Italian priest suggested starting every prayer with the words, Lord, I feel, and fill in the blanks. Lord, I'm confused. I'm confused because you said you heal, and I can ask you for anything in faith, and I did that, and it didn't work. And I don't know what to do with that. pretty honest. God, I'm angry. I'm livid. I'm vibrating. I'm livid. I'm angry. I cannot believe that person, they did it to me again. They said they wouldn't. I trusted them. They did it again. I don't know what to do with this. God, I'm angry. Lord, I feel. Fill in the blank. Share with God why you find that particular issue difficult Try to understand his position and viewpoint. Whatever you do, don't let it wreck your relationship with God. Try and understand him, sure. Try and understand his character, yes. But at the end of the day, remember that he is Lord, and here's the hard part, ready? Stay in relationship with him. Don't ditch your faith when it gets tough. Sixth metric. Can you take this approach with the difficult situations in your life, with the passages that don't make sense, with the things about God that you don't understand, or when those things happen, are you tempted to ditch your faith? And that's a measuring stick you can use to evaluate, are you relating well with God? Or is this an area where you could afford to grow? We can all grow. This is a tough one. Seventh principle, last one, create shared meaning. In marriage, this means create an inner life together, rich with symbols, rituals, and appreciation for your roles and goals that lead you to understand who you are as a family. In our relationship with God, this might mean a lot of things that you're already doing, okay? Going to church on a regular basis, time of devotions, creating rituals of connection, taking communion, Identifying shared goals that you and God both have, shared goals. Practicing community, serving others, eating together. I think the metric on this one is, are you an observer or an active participant in the kingdom of God? Are you praying for the kingdom of God to happen to you? Or are you engaged in it every day? Is your relationship with God confined to church on Sunday, church on Thursday, in your bedroom when you're doing devotions? Or is your relationship with God woven throughout every conversation, every relationship, everywhere you go, everything you do every day? And nobody's perfect, but I think that's the metric. Okay, are you an observer or an active participant in some of these things that create a rich inner life together between you and God, woven throughout every day. 
the next slide summarizes these seven metrics, and they're also on the bottom of your worksheet, so hopefully you weren't madly scrambling to write them all down. But I want you to pull out your application worksheet for a second, and on the back side, there's one more table, two minutes of silence, and I simply want you to think about those seven metrics and ask yourself, what's one of those metrics that you're currently doing well? What's one of those metrics where you could stand to improve? And if there were five, that's okay, pick one. You just get one for now. And what's one thing that you could change or try in the next seven days to get just a little bit better in that area? Take two minutes by yourself and fill that out, please. We'll wrap it up shortly here. Uh, last week, Chet used a phrase when he shared, he talked about doable rhythms that you could create in your life to mature in the way you relate with God. Have a look at your worksheet for a second. And the three things that you can do or try or change on the right-hand side of your sheet, if you try those this week and they go okay, those things might become the doable rhythms that Chet was talking about. If you try one, it doesn't quite work, adjust it. Tweak it, come up with a different one. Just make the attempt, right? I want to close tonight with a verse that I think summarizes actually a lot of what we've talked about tonight. It's in Second Chronicles 7.14. It says, if my people who are called by my name, God is saying this, my people who are called by my name, Christians, little Christs. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Talks about humility, one of the ways we can know if we're relating well with God. Talks about seeking God's face, taking him seriously. Turning from wicked ways, there's the hatred of evil. And note that there's a benefit to all of this. Heal their land. And for the author of this passage, heal their land meant more than you'll have a good crop next year. And it meant more than you won't have famine and there won't be locusts. For the author of this passage, heal their land also meant a restoration in the people's relationship with God. If you'll humble yourself, pray, seek me, hate evil, I will hear you, I will forgive you. I will restore the way that we relate together. Do you want that? I'm gonna close off the formal part of our evening. Uh, there's no discussion time because we've sort of already done the application, but by all means, stick around. And if you want to share what's on the page with some people around your table or your friends, great. If you don't, no pressure. There's always snacks in the back. I think there's snacks in the back or there will be. Um, and I want to encourage you to stick around, pray with one another, uh, and uh, just enjoy each other. But uh, I would love it if you would join me in closing in prayer. I want to thank you for being here tonight. Uh, holy and awesome God. Thank you for all you've done in the pursuit of us and in relating with us and in knowing us. 
And thank you for making a way for us to know you. Thank you that we don't have to fear approaching you. And in fact, you tell us to come boldly before your throne with our request to approach with confidence that we can find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And God, we are needy. <laughs> you are good and you're loving. I pray that you would teach us a little bit more tonight about what it means for us to fear you, to take you seriously, and to hate evil like you hate evil in our lives and in the world around us. I pray that the things you've identified for us tonight by your spirit, the areas that we can try and grow, you give us grace to try them, and you show us the parts of them that work and the parts that don't, and that by your spirit you just keep showing us the next step. You'd make us humble, and that through all of this, the result would be a greatly improved and a greatly deepened relationship with you, that we would know you as you are, that we would see ourselves as you see us. We would honor you with these lives that we have. Thank you that you are near us and you love us. Thank you that you died for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight. Stick around and uh, enjoy the rest of the evening. <laughs>